Thank you for listening to Voices Unheard Podcast, a podcast production of Physician Just Equity. Amplifying voices to cultivate cultural change. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Melissa Blaker and Dr. Pringle Miller. Welcome back to Voices Unheard. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Blaker. And I'm your other host, Dr. Pringle Miller. I have the good fortune of introducing our guest today. She is Dr. Darlin Moyer. Dr. Moyer is a board-certified internist and infectious disease specialist who has been a fellow of the American College of Physicians since 1995. She currently continues to see patients in the Temple Outpatient Internal Medicine Clinic and has a long history of being an associate program director and program director for internal medicine. She has served on the Board of Regents, chaired the American College of Physicians Board of Governors, and served as governor of the ACPs, which is the American College of Physicians, Pennsylvania Southeastern Chapter. Some of Dr. Moyer's research and scholarly activities have been in the areas of medical education, high-value clinical care, patient safety, and professionalism. I think the most noteworthy thing about Dr. Moyer is that in 2016, she became the first woman to serve as the American College of Physicians Executive Vice President and CEO in the 101-year history of the organization. Congratulations, Dr. Moyer, and welcome to the Voices Unheard podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Dr. Moyer, thank you for joining us here today. We are very excited to have you with us and to give our listeners a little background on the American College of Physicians. It's an organization with 160,000 members, and it is the largest medical specialty organization and second largest physician group in the U.S. It publishes Annals of Internal Medicine, which is one of the top journals in the world. The American College of Physicians has a center for ethics and professionalism that seeks to advance physicians and public understanding of ethics and professionalism issues in the practice of medicine in order to enhance practice care by promoting the highest ethical standards. So you recently talked to the Pennsylvania American College of Physicians chapter on why you can be what you cannot see. For you, the road to and through medical school is not easy or cheap, but you have valuable coaches, mentors, and sponsors along the way. Can you take us through these early stages of your journey and the key lessons you learned that shaped who you are today? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. We need to know where we've come from in order to know where we're going. I grew up uh, for the first five years of my life on a rural Pennsylvania farm, literally riding on my pop-ops tractor, then moved into the city of Reading proper when I was five. No one in my immediate family had gone to college. In fact, my mother had to quit high school at the age of 15. She was one of eight siblings in a large Polish family, and she uh, was one of the older siblings, so she couldn't complete her high school career. My dad did get a high school degree, and then in 19 19- 1941, one of his buddies got drafted and he went off into the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps, which is what the Air Force was called back then. So I had no nurses or doctors in my immediate family. And as a kid, I had had a, a couple of illnesses. And when I was about 10, I remember being hospitalized at the local hospital and with a mild pneumonia. And I had a, a, a rare pediatrician in rural Pennsylvania in the 1960s in a female pediatrician 
pediatrician by the name of Dr. Sandra Rowan. And I vividly remember one of the days her coming to my bedside and us striking up a conversation. And she looked at me and said, you know, you really should think about becoming a doctor when you grow up. I am a woman physician. There aren't very many of us around, but I do believe that women make excellent physicians. I took that advice to heart. She was my pediatrician through the age 18 until I went off to undergrad and really had my eye on the mark. She had clearly incited a spark in me. And I do think I also suffered the same thing that many children and people who have health issues and encounter the healthcare system early in life do, and that is that they're more inclined to go into careers in healthcare. And so I sort of got that fire in the belly and was able to sort of navigate into uh, doing pretty well in my pre-med years and going to medical school, actually at Temple University School of Medicine. And I was there from 81 to 85. And I did that because I felt a real commitment to underserved care. And I never looked back. And so I often think, you know, how this, this sort of almost serendipitous me, those stars aligning of me having this inspirational female pediatrician for me really galvanized and catalyzed a career in medicine. That's a very inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. Yeah, to pick up on that, I think, you know, your messaging about how your small town pediatrician encouraged you and sort of lit that fire in you to to consider a career in medicine. And there are so many folks out there, children, adolescents, who I think are so talented and probably very capable of pursuing a career in medicine, but don't have someone encouraging them or don't have that exposure and that opportunity. In your roles, all your leadership roles over the years, I would imagine that you've been able to kind of pay that forward. And I'm wondering for the listeners, how you think about that sort of coaching, mentoring, sponsorship over the years, how it's been refined and, you know, how you sort of promote other people to be in that role. Yeah, I think it's really one person at a time. And I encourage people, now that I'm a person of a certain age, I really encourage younger people to reach out to folks and ask them to tell them their story and how they got to where they got, how they made those decisions. And for all of us who are in the positions to be coaches, mentors, and sponsors, to be available and to make ourselves, you know, really readily available to folks to have those conversations. I've gotten in the habit of at the end of talks that I give, and I've been, you know, one of the really great opportunities in our Zoom world is that I have gotten to give a lot more talks than I typically could give when I was back on a heavy travel schedule, is I always, you know, give people my email address and tell them to reach out to me if they have questions or want to follow up or want thoughts about connecting on. I think one of the really good things that people of a certain age can do is they don't always know the exact advice to give someone, but they can certainly connect them and network them into folks that might be able to assist them. So I think you need to look at every opportunity as an opportunity to influence, to mentor, and and to help someone. And I know we all give willingly of our time, uh, 
regardless of whether it's men or women as well. And, you know, that is exactly right. You have to sort of pay it forward. I feel so blessed by all the great coaching mentorship and sponsorship that I have gotten over the years that I really do want to pay it forward. Yeah, that's great. And I think that this addresses a couple issues. One, we've talked about this before is the pipeline issue in medicine and how to increase the applicant pool of minorities and underrepresented physicians. And one of those ways to do that is to inspire high school, college students to go into medicine that wouldn't necessarily be captured by the generalized pool of applicants that go to medical school. And I think that the story that you outlined kind of captures the essence of that where individual physicians and the patients they see and pediatricians are really positioned in a good spot for this, but to inspire patients that would be not the normal type of applicant to go into medicine and to show them, to mentor them, to allow them to shadow them and to see what the field of medicine is all about early in their in their life. So I think that's great. And another thing that we've kind of talked about here is that you are just one of a few female CEOs of National Physician Professional Societies. And I'm just curious from your point of view, why do you think there's a paucity of women in these positions? And what do you think that we can do to help increase the pool of applicants that are available for those positions specifically? Well, I think that every system is designed to get exactly the results it gets. And if you take a look at how traditionally folks have advanced in national professional societies. So I really think it's important and critical for all organizations to take a very comprehensive look at their policies and procedures and really peek around those corners and look for those opportunities and look for those pathways to leadership that don't take that inexorable two, three, or four decades to get into a leadership position in an organization. And I also think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around term limits, for example, at academic health centers and healthcare organizations. I think uh, Reshma Jagsi wrote about this about a year and a half ago in the New England Journal. And I do think that's another thing that we need to understand what that means um, so that we allow people who can be able to step aside to allow the next leadership group to be able to step in and to hone their own skills and to demonstrate their leadership abilities. The bottom line is medicine has been a male-dominated world. It has been difficult for folks uh, from to sort of folks who have kids at home or dependent adults for particularly women where we know that the, the predominance of the home caregiving and being that CEO of the home falls into the woman's lap. It's been hard for them to get engaged in traditional activities for professional societies. One of the other silver linings of these, this pandemic has been that we have been able to be increasingly inclusive of folks who wouldn't always be able to travel to a meeting because they have had sort of the weight of all of the domestic issues laid at their feet. Now they are able to actually participate frequently in our new virtual world, and that's been certainly a silver lining. The bottom line is there needs to be comprehensive, deliberative work that is done, and it needs to be accountable to the fiduciary 
fiduciary board of the organization. You need to have those people that champion this and understand the elevator story, which is that the more diverse and inclusive we are at those leadership circles and those places that we're making those impactful decisions, the better our organization will be in every possible outcome we can measure. That has been demonstrated in uh, the business world and as well, and that includes the healthcare business world. You bring up some great points, and I just want to ask somewhat of a practical question. So I am active duty Air Force and in the military early on, so straight out of training, they kind of put you on a track, and that track is an administrative track or a clinical track. And they say that they really want you to focus on one or the other because it's too difficult to do both. In the context of what you just talked about, is it in civilian medicine, do you have to choose if you want to go down this track of doing clinical medicine and focusing your energies there, knowing that we all have only 24 hours in a day, or focusing on these professional societies and being involved and and being on their boards, or can you do both? Is it possible to do both and to do both well? Well, I, I don't think it's a Sophie's choice. I think you can do both, and I think you can do both well as long as you have the support on both sides to do that. When I reflect back on my career, I was very inspired by some of the infectious diseases faculty when I was a, a medical student and an internal medicine resident and ultimately decided to do an infectious diseases fellowship. And I thought when I decided to do that, I thought for sure I was going to be a clinician researcher and I would be eventually running a productive and prolific division of infectious diseases at an academic health center. And then sort of life interfered. I did a year of being a chief resident and I really realized how much I loved medical education. So I went off into an infectious diseases fellowship and loved the clinical work, you know, did some research. I was not enamored with bench research. I we I also got to work on a clinical project, which I enjoyed much more. But I really did some soul searching, realized I loved medical education. I was lucky I got invited to come back and take a faculty position actually at Temple. I'd done my fellowship at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And I was able to do a combination job, which was caring for people living with HIV, both in a primary way and a consultative way, do internal medicine, both inpatient, outpatient, as well as I did uh, in uh, infectious diseases consults for a few years. And then I sort of, again, agreed to help out the burgeoning new primary care track director and was the associate director for that. And then that person left and took a job elsewhere, became the primary care track director, and then eventually did associate program directorship for the internal medicine residency and then became the program director in 2005. At the same time, though, I was able to be able to continue both a clinical med ed uh, track at my institution. And around 2005, when I became the program director, was when I got tapped on the shoulder to get more engaged with the ACP. And it was Dr. Chuck Cutler, who was the current governor, who said, you know, Daryl, and we really need people with a medical educational focus, subspecialists as well, and quite frankly, women 
and people who bring diversity to the Pennsylvania ACP Council, would you be willing to serve? And I said, well, and again, one of my pieces of advice is never say yes immediately. Think about it and understand a little bit more about it. And I said, well, I'd be be interested to attend a meeting or two. So I started to attend meetings. I became very interested in it. Now, of course, it was at a point in my life where my kids were a little bit older. I will say that my home life has been very busy. A two-physician household has been very, very busy. I was very lucky that my mother, I'm an only child, not by choice, but my mother was like a second parent to my children growing up and she didn't live that far. And so I was very lucky that I had that additional support in the home arena because we never had a live-in nanny or any live-in childcare. So I started in 2005 to get more engaged and I found that I was able to sort of strike that balance and bring things that I learned in my professional life at Temple and through the program director network to the ACP and and vice versa. And, you know, interestingly, before I knew it, I was getting tapped on the shoulder to to run for governor of our chapter in 2008. And I surprised myself because, again, a, a lot of this, I was suffering a lot of imposter phenomenon as this was going on and ended up becoming the governor-elect for the chapter and then stepped into that role in 2010. And I've had a lot of great mentors and sponsors along the way, both, both men and women. And once I got into the governor role, I did that for four years, and then I did chair the board of governors and be part of the board of regents. I was able to continue to be able to balance that. So, you know, I think the long answer to your question is, yes, you can do it. But I think that you need to follow a few principles. And that is, number one, always bring your authentic self to work. It is way too much work to try to be something that you are not. And so I was able to successfully weave the clinical, the medical educational, the administrative aspects, and to be able to make it count once and twice and three times frequently and be able to bring that expertise to the ACP in particular on the leadership journey there. So I would say that the other really important thing is that you need to understand how much should you be on your plate. You know, when you're in your 30s and you're starting out in your career, you're going to get asked to do a lot of things. And you're probably going to say yes to many of those things because you're very interested in sort of figuring out, you know, where you want to make your mark. In your 40s, you're going to become a little more deliberative in your decision making and and really figure out if you really do want to do something else. Can you do it with everything else on your plate and learn to start to make some critical decisions? And then in your 50s, I think you're going to become really very focused on sort of what those professional goals are that you ha- that you have and how you're going to attain them. And I-, I would say that, you know, at the age of 57, I sort of disrupted my very comfortable career as a, a professor at-, at Temple and clinically active and active in the educational milieu and the administrative roles and decided to step into something really new with the ACP position. And it was a bit intimidating. It was a bit scary. Some people have said that if you're not scared when you step into a new position, you haven't stretched yourself enough. And I will say that I've 
felt a bit of that imposter phenomenon come upon me my first initial time becoming the ACP CEO, but I feel much more comfortable like everything else in my shoes now that I've done this for five years and I look forward to doing it for a little bit longer. But I do think you can do it, but you need to be, you need to talk to people, you need to bounce it off of your mentors and you need to be able to balance and you need to be able to rely on your network, your network for both, you know, your support um, in the personal realm of your life and your support in the professional realm. I really appreciate what you said about stretching oneself and sort of leaning in that into that discomfort of the unknown. As clinicians, often, you know, our lives are very structured and there's a real format to what we do. And most of us are very much go-getters and take the initiative and we don't like surprises and we have everything sort of planned out. But I think that you're right. If we're going to really grow in what we're capable of, we have to sort of go into that unknown abyss, which is uncomfortable. And some of us are less inclined to want to do that because of control issues or something else. I do want to go back to this issue of organizational governance, because I think it's really key right now with a lot of different professional societies. And we're, you know, seeing some concerns happening with JAMA subsequent to the structural racism podcast. And I, I have to say that, you know, as a surgeon, I've never been a member of the ACP. I'm a member, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, but I've watched the American College of Physicians issue statements. And I have been very impressed with that level of conscientiousness and the statement writing and getting out front of social and racial justice issues as issues of public health and issues that affect all of us clinicians. And and I've appreciated that. But I think um, what you said earlier is really key, which is that there needs to be intentional, comprehensive, deliberative action. And one of the things that I run up against is this resistance to acknowledging that the whole diversity, inclusion, equity issues actually exist. So I think that some organizations and some professional societies are still lagging a little bit behind in the recognition that these are good things, these make organizations better, and that there really isn't diverse representation. So I wanted to just let you talk about, and so I'm kind of talking about this force field that seems very impenetrable sometimes, and and talking about force and force fields, this acronym JEDI, which stands for Just Equitable Diverse Inclusive, Inclusive Initiatives in Healthcare, is something that we had hoped that you could expand on on the podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for those comments. You know, just so you know, first of all, ACP and our journal are firewalled. We're the operations and we are completely and editorially firewalled from the annals of internal medicine. And ACP's policy on how we create policy is that we do it the same way that we do it in healthcare and in science and in medicine. It is a data-driven, evidence-based pursuit. It's not polling our members. It's not taking votes. It is grounded in evidence. And I think you can look at the way, the road and the pathway to achieving a just, equitable, and diverse and inclusive environment the exact same way. You need to know where you have come from, 
where you are in order to know where you need to go. So you need to make sure that you are collecting the data, collecting all of the data. You know, so we're in the process of, you know, taking a look at all of our chapters in the college, as well as our national, international councils, committees, policies, processes, you know, to see where we are in terms of our baseline. What, you know, what, who are the rank and file members? Who are the leaders that are on that pathway for leadership potentially in our organization? And how do we ensure that we do have that diverse and inclusive and equitable approach to this? So I think that one of the really important things is that you need to do the needs assessment. You need to do the data analysis. You know, we've surveyed our former leaders at the national level to say, you know, what are what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? So we've, we're looking at a lot of different data points in order to inform our policies and positions and approach to this as we move forward. And I think that the data, when you actually take a look at the data in an organization, it really starts to speak for itself in terms of maybe you weren't quite where you thought you were. And then the question becomes, where do you want to go? And I would say, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, basically made some, you know, famous comments about, well, the Supreme Court has been all men for many, many years. When is it going to become all women? We seem to have this sort of almost thought that, oh, well, we have one person of color at the table. We have one woman. We have one young person at the table. You know, that's fine to bring the voice. And I would say, you know, we can find those people that are going to exemplify the diversity of the rank and file of the members of our organization and ultimately the patients that we care for. And we should not be satisfied because we have one person who represents them at that table. And not only is that person going to be a woman, a person of color, a younger person, but they're also going to be very incredibly well qualified. And that's the reason that we want them there. We just need to sort of upturn the apple cart and start looking for different ways to do things. And I'll give you an example of a deliberative practice that we've really instituted with awards and mastership in the ACP. So I think, you know, you've we've written, you've seen some, some articles. I think Julie Silver wrote several years ago an article regarding the awards for the American Academy of Physician of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. So we went back and took a look from 2005 or 2007 on through to see hmm, how many women are getting nominated for a mastership in the American College of Physicians versus men. And once nominated, how successful are they at getting that, that MACP designation? And lo and behold, we found that very few women in that initial eight to 10-year period were being nominated for a mastership in the American College of Physicians. But they were once nominated, they were much more likely to be awarded an MACP than men were. And this, I think, goes to men will apply for a position when they're 50 or 60 percent ready, whereas women have to be more than 
100% qualified to do this. So we looked at this and said, why is this happening? Well, we know that the pathway into national awards and, and a mastership in the ACP is through the local chapters. And we really made a deliberative effort to get our local leaders to start to look broader and wider for women who were very worthy of an MACP designation. And so we saw that we saw a dramatic uptick in the number of women who then started to get nominated because of this deliberative practice, this group of folks that was working with the chapters to ensure that they were again reaching broadly and widely and try to recognize folks that were worthy of MACP. We also know that sort of the local begets uh, in that pathway to national, international, many of our chapters don't even have an award for a woman in medicine, for an early career physician, for an international medical graduate. So also asking our chapters to take a look at that whole landscape as well. So once we instituted this, really this data analysis, working deliberatively and comprehensively, we now see that the number of women, for example, in the past two years that have received a a mastership in the American College of Physicians is around a third of the group, which actually reflects the percent of women we have who are in our practitioner rank and file group in our organization. So I think it really is critical. And this is an an example of a evidence-based, data-driven, comprehensive, deliberate practice that has resulted in us finding, looking far and wide and finding many more folks for MACP. And we're, we're doing the same thing with the awards as well. I think the challenge for any organization with the awards that they give out is you need to make sure that the awards that you are bestowing are actually aligned and contemporized with your current values and goals of your organization. And for hopefully all of our organizations, we continue to evolve those goals and shift those values in goals to reflect contemporary happenings, such as ensuring diversity, equity, and inclusion in our organizations. Well, I really appreciate that. And as I said earlier, I think that the ACP is really ahead of the game in terms of being mindful and intentional and deliberative about diversity and using the data to drive new initiatives and new efforts to make sure that those people that should be awarded are awarded and those people that should be in leadership that have these diverse backgrounds and can bring a lot to the table are put into those positions. I think one of the problems is that not all organizations see that as a, as a value. And that's where the, the challenge is, is that there are some organizations, and I would say, you know, my, my primary professional organization is one of the organizations that I am concerned is not so aware or mindful about these types of issues. And I think that as Julie Silver has said in, in conferences before, you know, that the data is there in general to suggest that there are many women who are very qualified for leadership positions and awards, and there are very many underrepresented minorities as well. But if you're not 
looking at your data and you're not interested in learning where the deficits are, then you're not going to respond to it. And so I, I appreciate everything that you've said because I, I would like to see other organizations come on board with being introspective and acknowledging that the equity is not something that's inherent to the organization and it requires that deliberative action to really make it so. No, yeah, absolutely. And I can I think everyone's on a different spot on the continuum here. And I think one of the important things that we need to do is to all help each other as we move along this continuum. The Council of Medical Specialty Societies, which is the an organization of forty-five of the national professional physician specialty societies, represents over eight hundred thousand practicing physicians has this whole road to just, equitable, diverse, inclusive environments as one of its top strategic priorities. So I think that, you know, again, we're going to see that everyone is going to learn from each other and they're going to see how important it is to have this happen. And even though you may because your organization is different, you may not be able to adapt exactly what others have done. You can, there are certainly these foundational principles that you can follow. And, you know, I get to talk, as I said, I've been one of the silver linings of, you know, being in our, our quote, virtual world is that I, you know, gotten to give a lot of talks at academic health centers and with our chapters in particular over the past year or so. And I really sense that we're really starting to get to a critical mass and really starting to get to a tipping point. And I certainly hope that we can all work together to help to pull each other along this so that we're just not moving the needle, but we're shifting the tectonic plate. We really need this to be sort of a dramatic paradigm shift. If we continue to go with the progress that we're going, we're going to be decades away from however you want to measure equity in our society at any level and in our professional societies as well. But there are some societies, I think, that are really, that are leading the way here. Yeah, and I think you touch on some great points in what you said and that there's still a decent amount of physicians out there that think that this is not an issue that medicine needs to address. And I love that the initiatives that you have used as a society are data-driven because it's easy to argue with somebody's opinion, but difficult to argue with data. And I also like how what you said about using the data to make sure that what you're doing is contemporary and not based on tradition. And a lot of the difficulty with these initiatives is that the people that are elected to sit at the table and get the awards are people that look like the people that are sitting at the table and getting the awards. And it's very difficult to change that landscape unless you do something innovative like you're talking about here. So I think that those are some very key issues. And Pringle and I are working together to form an organization called Physician Just Equity, along with other partners and advisory board members. And going back to the elevator image, we use it in a little bit different context in that the story that we give people about what we're doing should be concise enough that we can convey the whole point in a short elevator ride. And in a world where we need concise data and action items, what are the top action items now that organizations can undertake to catalyze efforts that will result in meaningful and sustainable change? And you've kind of talked about that a little bit, but if you could, if you could boil it down to the top three things that can be done in these areas? Well, I think they need to educate everyone. 
everyone in their rank and file, but particularly the, the people who are, are the fiduciary board for that organization. They need to be on board. They need to get the ele- more than the elevator story, understand that they're going to have much better outcomes, much better human outcomes, outcomes from a quality and safety perspective, and better business outcomes in terms of the economics. So I think that, you know, making sure that the elevator story is known to all, but particularly the board is critical. I do think you need key leaders at those organizations to be able to understand why they need to undertake this broad swath of an evidence-based data-driven analysis and the willingness to disrupt structures, processes, systems that may have been in place for years in order to get to where they need to go. And I think that Grassroots is also really important, but grassroots is not going to do it all. The third thing is you really need to get those energetic folks that are on the front lines of these issues to be sort of that kitchen cabinet and to help the leadership of the organization get there. You've got to engage the people on the front lines and you've got to activate them to help you and to all work together. We're never going to fix this if this continues to just be grassroots driven groups of women and other traditionally marginalized and excluded folks that are trying to do this all. And I would say the last thing is you have to give resources to this. You cannot expect, you know, this to happen in an organic way. There must be resources devoted to these efforts. Thank you. I wanted to call attention to, it's already coming up on a year, which is really amazing, the ACP statement that was released in response to George Floyd's death, which came out in June of 2020. And this is just another example of how I was looking at the ACP relative to the ACS and the messaging that was being put out into the world, into the space about the connection of racial violence and social justice and healthcare, and what is the role of professional organizations and clinicians to, in some senses, be activists against those things that are harmful to people in our population. And so I I just want to read it. And then I I would like to ask you how you have seen in the year some of the other efforts that may have changed with the ACP as a result of this policy statement that was issued. So the death of George Floyd was a tipping point in exposing the harm caused by systemic racism. And that was said by Dr. Ganser. The college had already been researching background for a paper on racism and health since Mr. Floyd's death. We heard urgent calls to action from multiple ACP members and chapters across the country, pointing out this is a public health issue that calls for action by their professional medical society. And then following that, ACP commits to being an anti-racist organization that is committed to action and policy to confront and eliminate racism. And ACP condemns the injustices and harm that black and indigenous communities and other people of color experience as a result of passive overt and covert systemic institutional racist policies, practices, and discrimination in the United States. 
So I applaud the ACP for those words and that statement. And I'm wondering if you could say something about where the ACP has come after that. Well, you know, I, again, this is this just goes to show that everything is so inextricably intertwined. And the mission of the ACP is to enhance the quality and effectiveness of health care by fostering education and professionalism in the practice of medicine. So it is ultimately about getting us to a better place in health care. It's not about being a guild. It's about finding a better place for health for our patients. And it's very clear that there are significant disparities in healthcare in the United States. And we've been writing about this for a while. We had a social determinants of health paper several years before this happened. And actually this past January, January of 2021, we released a paper around healthcare disparities and addressed many, many aspects that feed into that system. Because ultimately we need to be a society that is about health, not about sickness. And that is what the, what's what the ACP is all about. And again, all of our policy papers are written in a data-driven, evidence-based way. And there is incontrovertible and a tsunami of evidence regarding the inequities that are actually accelerating in our world. And we really felt like we needed to take a stand. And also signify to the world that not only are we working to becoming a just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive organization, but we are also actively anti-racist as well. Thank you for those comments. And for many of our listeners, being a part of a non-majority population in healthcare is extremely challenging and discouraging at times, especially when you're backed up against a system that does not embrace tangible or sustainable change. So I have a two-part question as we end today. But all good coaches give their teams a pep talk or a battle cry before they embrace their opponent. So what battle cry can you give to our listeners today as they fight these issues on the front lines? And the second equally challenging question is what words of encouragement can you offer to those that are fighting the good fight but feel discouraged as the battle is intense but the victories are few and far between? Yeah, I would say that I think we need to also understand that leadership is a marathon, not a sprint. And that it's going to take all of us to work together to get there. And I believe that you know, none of us have had easy sort of careers. We've all hit many stumbling blocks and boulders. The ability to be able to fail forward, to take lessons that you have learned to the next encounter, and to always bring the best of your authentic self and think about how your mission is congruent with the mission of the organization that you're working with. And I think when you talk to people about that congruency of mission, that it resonates and it makes a difference. And to just keep fighting the good fight, we're going to get there. Those are great words. And I always like to leave our listeners with a challenge, something tangible that they can take with them throughout their week. And I think one thing that I've heard come through this interview is a lot of times when we talk on these issues, we talk in somewhat of a dichotomy that we have to change these what, from an outside point of view or a grassroots point of view, where we have to change these issues on the inside from an institutional administrative point of view. And I think one thing that you really brought to the forefront in this conversation is just the value of professional organizations and how being involved, you know, especially starting at the local chapters and things like that can help to address these issues from yet another point of view. So if you're not involved in your local professional chapters of 
the professional societies that you are a part of, I encourage you to look into the local chapters and to get involved. So thank you for taking this time to talk to us and to share your expertise and just the lessons that you have learned through life and the many valuable lessons that you've given us through this conversation. I really appreciate it. So do I. I'm thrilled that you're in the position that you're in. We're all better for it. Thank you. Well, thank you for all you do every day. Those folks on the front line, they are the real, quote, heroes. I know that heroes has been sort of one of those words that has had double-edged meaning, but just thank you for all all you're doing. Thanks to all of your listeners. We're going to get there and please reach out, reach out to those folks at your national societies. Don't be afraid. They, we love to hear from, from folks so, and want to help them and want to all get to a better place together. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at www.physicianjustequity.com, where you can access our resource library and share who you want us to interview next. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at at EquityDocs. We look forward to meeting again so we can amplify voices to cultivate cultural change.